My name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to episode number 20 of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast, featuring my conversation with both Dr. Jim Fadiman, author of an all-time classic, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, alongside Jordan Gruber, and they both co-authored a new book called Your Symphony of Selves, Discover More of Who You Are. We have a definition that goes something like selves, also called self-states, are recurring patterns of mind-body chemistry, perception, beliefs, intentions, and behaviors in human beings. To, To come to the conclusion first, the idea that mental health is being in the right mind at the right time has has never been more valuable and true. So, you know, these ideas have been around in a lot of different formulations in many cultures and with many different groups. Uh, But the basic idea that you are or ought to be a single unified self hasn't been questioned for over a hundred years. The coping mechanisms that the traumatized self has developed in order to protect itself need to be honored and to see if they're still necessary. So it isn't that, see, that's, that's why we're a little concerned when people talk about a best self or a core self, because there are times when what, what one might call a very peripheral self is exactly who you wish to be for that amount of time. You know, our basic theme is just that awareness heals. And once you have an awareness, that despite everyone telling you you're crazy, if you think you have different selves, you do, because everybody does, including the healthiest people alive, uh, we just think a lot of things become easier. And there's all sorts of implications for uh, performance and longevity and health. There are applications in every area of life, because life, this is a core fundamental precept of psychology that we think is just inaccurate, that there's a single self. When you think about yourself, do you consider yourself to be one unified self? Or is it possible that you have multiple selves? And if you did consider yourself to have more than one self, would that be a sign of pathology or an indication of health? Adopting this notion that we have more than one self is what Jordan and Jim call healthy multiplicity, and it directly sits at odds with the current prevailing notion in the fields of healthcare and psychology that we have only one unified self. In this episode, we're going to dive into what they call the healthy selves model, described in their book, Your Symphony of Selves, and explore questions like, if we have more than one self, How many selves do we really have? And are all of our selves an expression of ego? Can one of our selves be our higher self? What if we don't like one of our selves that seems to wreak havoc on our lives? Should we give that self a backseat amongst our entourage of other selves? Can one of our selves be a different age or even a different gender than our other selves? And how does this concept of multiple selves fit in with shadow work or childhood trauma or working with psychedelics? This is what we're going to talk about in this episode and so much more. So many of you are likely familiar with Jim Fadiman's work. You've probably heard his name. He is a legendary figure in the psychedelic movement. As I said, he's the author of The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, a book that I read oh so many years ago. He's a professor of psychology. He taught at the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology, now Sophia University, which he helped to co-found. 
And you've also likely heard of the term microdosing, which is really hitting the mainstream in such a big way. Now, that's a term that Jim Fadiman actually coined, and he's also known for the popular Fadiman Protocol, which he created, which became even more popular after Ayelet Waldman published her book called A Really Good Day, How Microdosing Made a Mega Difference in My Mood, My Marriage, and My Life, where she followed the Fadiman Protocol and wrote about it in her book and how it completely transformed her life. So we're not going to talk about microdosing in this episode, although I am planning on having Jim Fadiman back to record again where we dive deep into all topics related to microdosing, as well as the really fascinating studies he conducted back in the 60s around psychedelics and creativity, which as many of you know, is an area that I'm also currently studying. So I talk about the Fadiman protocol in my free eight-day microdosing course, if you haven't yet signed up for that, you can find that on my website at livefreelauraD.com on the freebies tab, alongside my four music playlists for psychedelic journeys and beyond. One playlist of which I highly recommend for microdosing morning flows. And Jordan Gruber is also just such a brilliant mind and an excellent writer. And he really spearheaded this project, this book, Your Symphony of Selves, with Jim. And it's a book that I highly recommend reading. And I've just been so enjoying connecting with and getting to know both Jordan and Jim on Clubhouse over the past few months. So for those of you who are on that platform, many of you are probably starting to hear the name Clubhouse pop up more and more because it's becoming such a popular platform. I host weekly rooms in the Psychedelic Clubhouse, primarily on Tuesday evenings between 6 and 8 p.m. PST, and I'll include links to my Clubhouse profile in the show notes, but it's Live Free Laura D, which is the same as my Instagram handle. And if you want to join in on the conversations I'm hosting around psychedelics and microdosing, leadership, mindset, creativity, flow states, entrepreneurship, you know, all the fun things, just check out my profile and make sure to follow me and receive all the notifications for when I open up a room on the Clubhouse platform. And so before we dive in, I just want to let you guys know that I have just a few spots left for my three-month microdosing mastermind program. And I've been receiving a lot of applications for this program, and I'm really taking the time to interview each person to make sure that I'm curating the right group for this particular cohort that starts in June and runs through until the end of August. And this is really such a unique and special program, primarily geared towards people who are either already in the psychedelic space. So I have a few integration coaches, a few microdosing coaches, guides, people in the plant medicine retreat space, and some entrepreneurs in the space as well. And I also have a number of transformational coaches who have slightly different offerings, but they're all interested in potentially offering microdosing to their own clients. So this is for people who really want to go beyond the basics of microdosing, who want to deepen their daily practice and cultivate a microdosing practice to tap into flow states, unlock creativity, and weave more ceremony into the fabric of our everyday lives. And what makes this program so unique is that we're also including five mastermind sessions, exploring a range of topics related to entrepreneurship, particularly around refining your core message, cultivating your thought leadership, 
expanding your offering, whether that's coaching or online programs, and really building a platform to extend your reach of positive influence. So I'll also be sharing my frameworks and content that weaves science with wisdom teachings, because really the foundation of so much of what I teach is rooted in Eastern philosophy. But I'm also taking a step back and showing people how I create my frameworks, how I leverage my morning microdosing practice to literally cultivate mindsets that allow me to expand the boundaries of what I believe is possible, and how I personally work with psychedelics and sacred plant medicines to hold a vision for what I'm creating in my life and how I transmute that vision into reality. And so I also have a lineup of some incredible guest speakers who will be joining us for the program, including Manesh Gurn, who's a psychedelic neuroscientist who I featured in episode number five. And so this program is really designed and created for people who want to explore how they can be of service on the plant medicine path and really come together to cultivate lifelong relationships and connections to other people who are also in the psychedelic space. All right, so if you want to apply for the three-month microdosing mastermind, you can find more information on my website, livefreelauraD.com. And because I'm still going through applications and interviews, I'll put an extension on the early bird discount. And I'll be leaving you off with a song that I just love called Inner Worlds by Yema. And I thought Inner Worlds was just an appropriate song for this episode as we explore our inner worlds of multiple selves. And I've had some really potent psychedelic moments with an eye mask and noise canceling headphones listening to this particular song. And so of course, it's also included on one of my four music playlists for psychedelic journeys and beyond. All right, without any further ado, here is my fascinating conversation exploring healthy multiplicity with both Jordan Gruber and Jim Fadiman. Welcome, Jordan Gruber, Jim Fadiman. It's a pleasure to have you both on the podcast today. Thanks for joining me. It is a real pleasure. It is. We've been waiting for this for a couple of few weeks now since we uh, first got closer on Clubhouse. So this is exciting for it to actually happen. Yeah, it's been so nice connecting with both of you on Clubhouse. And I've been really appreciating your book, your symphony of selves, discover and understand more of who you are. So I'd love to just dive right in and maybe you could just lay out the basic premise, your perspective on multiple selves. And maybe you can describe why this perspective is so beneficial. Well, the perspective of multiple selves is we've observed how the how people actually are. And how they actually are is have internal multiplicity. And the way we make this kind of screamingly obvious is, have you ever argued with yourself? And everybody goes, uh, yeah. And then we say, who was the other person? And then there's this kind of quiet moment where yet the, the theory of that they only have oneself just didn't work in this most basic moment. And so when you start from there, you begin to understand that what you are is an internal multiplicity and that one of the goals you have in this life is to have the different selves, the different parts of you um, work harmoniously. And that's really why we have a title called a symphony of cells, because in a symphony, all the instruments or the groups of instruments are really quite different. But what they've learned is by cooperating with each other and really listening to each other and supporting each other 
um, you have you know, the magnificence of a symphony. And so why is this such a radical notion? And how does this so fundamentally go against the common prevailing models in current psychology, which seems to point towards more of a unified self model? Oh, well, uh, you know, it's not really that radical. A notion is one of the things. Um, this was the way that American psychology held the way things were until about 1910. So we go back to William James, the father of American psychology, and he had this idea of social selves. And you basically had as many different social selves as you hung out with different people in different places and different things. And that's pretty much how everybody thought about things until the idea got driven underground for various reasons that we may or may not touch. And you sort of only saw it in things like Sybil and cases of extreme what's become called multiple personality disorder and later dissociative identity disorder. But the whole time, there were always obvious things like, you know, with a kid, you can't teach them unless it's a teachable moment, which really means unless the part of them that is there that is teachable, you can't teach them. And, uh, you know, to, to, to come to the conclusion first, the idea that mental health is being in the right mind at the right time has, has never been more valuable and true. So, you know, these ideas have been around in a lot of different formulations in many cultures and with many different groups. Uh, but the basic idea that you are or ought to be a single unified self hasn't been questioned for over 100 years. And, uh, you know, started with Jim's realizations. And then looking around, we came to see that if you just really look at the people in your lives that you know and yourselves, you'll realize you are really not always the same person, the same self-state. You know, the part of uh, me that is going to hang out with my daughter's friends is not the same part of me that hangs out with my friends or with people who are employing me. And, and so we use nice terms like self-states to describe it scientifically, but fundamentally people are inconsistent. And when you realize this is one of the reasons, you can be more compassionate to everybody in your life, including yourself. Hmm. So what do you think are the drawbacks then of the prevailing notion that we are one unified self, especially <laughs> from the perspective of how we treat mental illness in the Western culture? Is this current model psychologically damaging, do you think? Um, it's limiting. I don't know, damaging is probably a little strong, though I would, though I would go for it. But what we're seeing is very simply... Um, do you think inside yourself, and I'm now talking to everyone listening to us, that you're always consistent? And the answer is no. In fact, there are times when you say to yourself, I can't believe I did this. I don't know what got in it. I'm just not this way. So we actually notice when one of our other selves is, is, is doing something. We also, if we are close to anyone, including our children especially, and we say, are they consistent? And you say, you know, my children are really, let us imagine, well-behaved, except I notice when they're with this particular friend, they get wild and crazy. Or they're usually wild and crazy and exciting, and I'm so impressed with their adventurousness. But when they're with certain people, they become like little church mice. And so you're used to seeing people switching into an appropriate self. And so if you don't, if you believe that that's pathology, then you're believing that your own natural attributes, your own skill set 
is somehow defective, somehow that you're wrong for having normal capacities. And of course, that's damaging. Hmm. And, you know, the other way it's damaging is just that trying to shove people into being one thing. I mean, we get two different types of people really get a lot out of reading the book. Uh, one of them is someone who realized there's this long-term pattern they've had with their wife or their partner. And even though they knew about parts, now they sort of understand. And uh, and the other person is, um, we have all sorts of people who say, you know, my whole life, everybody tried to stuff me into one box, into being one thing. And in high school, they told me I had to be just this thing, but I was this and this and this and this. And so when the parts of you that you have been suppressing get to come out, it's a huge relief and they feel a lot better and everything starts to work better. You know, you really can't have the full life you're capable of until you realize that you've got these cells and they're real and you have to learn to work with all of them. Okay. So it seems like step number one is awareness, that awareness is key here and that simply acknowledging that we have multiple selves is in and of itself very beneficial. Okay, but going beyond that now, what are some of the ways that we can really get to know our various selves a little bit better? <laughs> well, there's a few chapters that, that give you that. But fundamentally, um, if you just, well, we, we have some terms. One term that's very popular in the culture now is called being triggered. And that's usually when you move from a, a, a socially acceptable self into something that you and maybe the other people don't like. When you, for instance, have a, a family event, you say, don't discuss religion with Uncle Albert. Because Uncle Albert, who's this perfectly lovely person, has a position on religion that the rest of the family disagrees with. And once Uncle Albert is triggered into that side of him, there he can't get out. He doesn't have the skill to let go of that part. And so everyone suffers. And we all know that situation. So the, the nice thing about discovering yourselves is it's, it's more like saying, if I had selves, how would I explain to myself all these behaviors that I have now very complicated notions about? And the answer is, it's much easier. One of the reasons that, that we did do this book is a, one of my children in particular kept saying, Dad you got to do this book. It makes life easier. And so that's that's the fundamental, which is allowing the, what we see to be obvious, to be acceptable, leads to the not, not the worry of self-discovery, but the pleasure of self-discovery. Yeah, it's so interesting. Why do you think that this concept of multiple selves has such a dark shadow cast over it? I mean, like you said, for the past hundred years, it seems like this has been used to point to pathology. So why do you think that is? Oh, well, let's go back a step, which is the, the term, the negative term is called disassociation, which means, of course, the separation of individual selves sufficiently so they're not working well. The obvious word that that comes from is called association. And association is the way we normally are, which is the parts of us are not only harmonious, but understanding that what what's the most useful self. So if I am with my eight pound dog, 
or I'm with a a colleague who's a, a, a neurophysiologist, I'm going to behave differently. And, and I have to know the difference or else um, my dog, for, on the one hand, will not accept me and the, uh, the scientist will, will run out of the room. <laughs> but we know better. We know how to move in and out of these different aspects of ourselves. And, and being conscious that that is what's going on just makes it easier. Mm-hmm. And so how would you define that to be fundamentally different than just saying, oh, well, you know, we're intelligent human beings. We are in a different situation and situations differ. So we show up with adaptability towards situations and that more just allocating it to like a mood or a behavioral change rather than like a self or a personality. It's more. It's more. And it's more literally physiologically there are shifts physical literally when you when you move into a different self you can actually feel in your own body you have a different emotional state um, you're literally you can you know we say my stomach tightened okay now we're talking not that's not a mood that's a shift in you in the way you are preparing your body to act um, mm-hmm. We have these stories, and they're true, of the 125-pound the woman who looks out the window and she sees that a car is, is rolling very slowly down the hill and it's about to roll over her child. And we know she runs out, she picks up the bottom of the car, she pushes her child away with her foot, and it's over. And, of course, that's remarkable. And then the people from the local tabloids show up And they say, lady, would you mind picking up the car again so we can do a photograph? And she says, are you crazy? You know, I'm a 135-pound woman. I can't pick up the back of a car. Mm -hmm. See, that's a story which, if I tell it, it's not considered unusual. But what you're seeing is a shift that's much more profound and much more useful biologically. We we have... uh, Many people, for instance, feel they have to dress for work. That's including during this uh, last year when working was at home. And there were lots of jokes about working in your pajamas. But for most people, they would get into their, quote, work clothes so they could be their work person. And and then at the end of the day, they would take off their work clothes and they would be their their home person. We understand Mm -hmm. instinctively what what we're just making a a little more visible. Mm-hmm. So also, uh, Laura Dawn, to, to answer your question, um, we have a definition that goes something like selves, also called self-states, are recurring patterns of mind-body chemistry, perception, beliefs, intentions, and behaviors in human beings. We are comprised of a set or constellation of these. So most people, when they start feeling into it, they'll go, even without having to name them or anything, they'll go, yeah, there's several general parts of who I am. One of the authors that we uh, learned from in England named Rita Carter talked as these as majors. But however you want to cut it up, when you see the patterns, you get that there is something to the cells that, you know, that's why we say each self has its own innate value, its own agenda. You can't just get rid of it. And it's, you know, it's, it has, it's part of, uh, of who you are. Um, so we, we do think that people do go through some pretty um, 
extremely different self states. I mean, another example that, that Jim uh, likes to talk about, and so do I, is uh, this uh, patient in a mental institution who had the pathological type of mental personality. And in most of his personalities, if he drank orange juice, he would get terrible hives. But if he was 11-year-old Timmy, he'd have no hives. If he drank orange juice, his Timmy had no hives, and then they brought another one of the cells in to run the show, to front the body, as they say, then he'd get the hives again. And all this was reported by uh, Dan Goldman in the New York Times. So we don't dwell on this in the book because we don't want to sensationalize, you know, this is like the movie Split and people in different personalities have different superpowers. And we're not saying it's like that, but different eyeglass prescriptions, different brain scans. Um, we think that, you know, part of what separates us, while we don't have a theory, is that you can observe the different selves of someone in your life pretty easily once you start looking for it. So there is utility to thinking of, of them as patterns, if, even if other people like to think of them as sort of a, capacities that come online and offline and small minds that get wheeled in and wheeled out. That was the sort of uh, thing that appealed to Sam Harris the other day. But we think there are these patterns and, you know, you sort of have a feeling for which the cells that show up the most often in your life are, and maybe some that you'd like to see a little bit more often. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What was the name of the, the first author that you mentioned that in the UK? Oh, Rita Carter wrote a book called The People We Are. We just sent her a copy of the book. We hope she likes it. Okay, cool. Thanks for for stating that. Um, What were you going to say, Jim? Oh, uh, I was just taking a different example, and I was wondering, do you speak any other language? Uh, I grew up in Montreal, and my French is like, could be better, but it's there. Montreal is actually wonderful, because in Montreal, as you know, people will speak half of a sentence in French, and then they'll do the rest in English. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. But if but if you go to a place where you either are speaking French or speaking English, what we know, and there's research, is literally you will have a different tonal pattern to your speech. That mm-hmm. your French will be maybe faster, maybe slower, but maybe a different pitch, but it'll be actually as if a different personality is is your French one. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it definitely makes a lot of sense. And I guess for me, it's just really learning how to make this really applicable. Like, for example, you know, shadow work is such a popular topic right now. How do we apply this model to shadow work, for example? Well, it depends which level you're speaking about shadow on. If you're talking about the big, scary Jungian archetype that we all face on some existential numinous level that is always frightening, that's, you know, you need people like you who work with people on other levels. If you're talking about some of ourselves are still in the shadow and therefore we're not integrating them and we need to bring them out, we need to find out what they need and how to heal them, that's sort of more of how we would think about it. And just to say about Jung very briefly, um, you know, Jung wrote his doctoral dissertation on his cousin's case of multiple personality. And then he obviously was very close with Freud, and he studied with Pierre Genet in Paris, who was a big player in this. But then when Freud kind of put the kibosh on the whole thing, Jung took it internally, both with his archetypes, including the shadow, and his idea of autonomous complexes. And if you read on the book about how Jung talks about autonomous complexes, they sound a lot like what we're talking about selves. But he didn't stay there or dwell on any of that. Jim, do you have anything you want to add to that? Well... Yeah, I, I'm, I'm always a little concerned when people are saying there are parts of themselves 
that are defined negatively. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, I'm thinking of, of thinking of what it's like in grammar school. If you're the kid in the class that gets picked on, mm-hmm. it's very hard for you to have a self-concept that's, that's very good because around you, you're being treated as if you're inferior. Now, it may be that you're in a, um, it's a racial issue. It may be a linguistic issue, maybe a social class issue, but you end up confused because in some situations you're treated as one kind of person and in a different situation, another kind of person. I'm, I'm, I'm remembering when my, my brother, my older brother, came back from college and he was very happy and very successful in college. And after several days of being home, um, his parents, my parents, <laughs> accused him of being very selfish. And he came up to me in, in our room and he said, with really tears in his eyes, he says, at school, no one thinks I'm selfish. I don't know what's going on. Why did they do that? And what it was, more than likely, is the situation shifted and the behaviors that my parents requested were not coming through. And so instead of saying, here is a different way of, of behaving because you're now in college and you're, you're learning about yourself, they, they gave him a label, the selfish person. And when we start labeling any of ourselves, we do them a disservice. And so when... when and, so if shadow work is simply finding parts of yourself that if you think of a stage, being in the shadows, all that means is the lights, the house lights aren't on you, but you're still a full-scale character. In fact, you may be the lead. But if we consider a shadow, you know, something disturbing or, or dirty or you know, unworthy, then, then that part of you... Um, doesn't that doesn't support the whole system mm-hmm. the whole system being the the whole person mm-hmm. so you say that there are three premises to this perspective one that we all have selves two that different selves are truly different and inherently valuable and that it's easy to see beyond the self so looking at point number 2 different selves are truly different and inherently valuable Looking at this through the lens of trauma or the wounded self, like you're talking about this example of going to school and having, you know, these traumatic experiences. And let's say that that cultivates a self that is incredibly, let's say, narcissistic, for example. So how do we bring this into the model of like, maybe there are parts of myself that are um, self-sabotaging? or that aren't actually optimal or treating other people with kindness? How do we bring, how do we rectify these, these concepts? Well, there are possibly just as, as if I have a, a, a growth on the side of my foot called a bunion, that means walking is painful. Now, I didn't just say the area around my bunion. So I get head for that bunion. Okay, and I might go to a specialist. And similarly, if there are selves which are sabotaging, you know, the whole house, um, that you get professional help. And but one of the things to keep in mind, and and we often undersell the part of us that's traumatized, is the coping mechanisms that the traumatized self has developed in order to protect itself need to be honored 
and to see if they're still necessary. Okay. I mean, for instance, we let go of beliefs and attitudes throughout our life. Um, and I, when I was when I was teaching people a kind of self-help system of, of affirmations, and I would say, can you change a basic belief? And a lot of them would say, no, because they'd had psychotherapy. <laughs> okay? And I would say, well, imagine, do you remember who thought that when someone else put their tongue in your mouth, it was disgusting? And there would be this moment of recollection of when you were, you know, 10, 11, or 12. And then there were older kids who were already somewhat sexual. And you really didn't know what was going on. And then a couple of years later, you looked back and you saw that you had indeed let go of a lot of beliefs about the way people should behave. So one of the things that we see in therapy, when we're not trying to stuff everybody back into a little box that they don't fit in, is to see what does the traumatized part of the self have that is worth keeping so it can be helped and supported. But but one then isn't a trauma victim. One has a self that's a trauma victim. And that's a very different attitude. It's, again, think of a family and there's one child who's very upset. You don't say, well, we've got to get rid of all the children. You say, wait a moment, that's that's... That's not correct. Let's let's give the traumatized child extra help and support so that they, for instance, I mean, one of the things you actually do um, is with a child who feels unloved is you give them a pet. And what happens is the pet loves them and they in turn being loved and, and a lot of people recover. We do it with, we have a whole, you know, we have systems in prisons where you take, quote, hardcore criminal psychopaths and you give them pets. And they end up being able to practice safely the kinds of feelings that they that they haven't had before. And the other parts of their selves might be just fine. And so the healing becomes, the healing gets faster when you know what you're doing and that you don't, you're not trying to heal a whole self when only one part is, is a problem. But if you heal that self, wouldn't you say that that healing brings you back into sort of wholeness? Like maybe the word wholeness isn't the right word here, but if you're healing that, isn't that coming sort of back into alignment with your core self? I mean, it's it's like this interesting juxtaposition of like compartmentalizing another yep. self. But what happens with the healing of that self? Then that you're saying that that self that was once wounded is like also growing up alongside you and evolving. Well, let, let me, I want really Jordan to take this, but I, I have an image that may make it easier. If the violin player isn't doing a good job and gets some special help so the violin section works, the orchestra doesn't mush into a single instrument. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I wanted to say just a couple of things. First, one of the people in our book has a saying that uh, if you have a problematic part of yourself, you're not a bad dog. You just have a bad dog. And if you have a bad dog, and this is us now, you're not going to put it down because that doesn't work. You're going to find ways of working with it and loving it. You're not going to put it in the shadow and turn out the lights and not beat it because that's going to make it even crazier and vicious. And Jung and others have talked about if you try to push something like that, it, it will come back up. But uh, when Jim said he wanted me to take it is um, when you went back, uh, Laura Dawn, and said it has to be your core self, what we're saying is that 
there really isn't necessarily a core self on that level. Um, we're saying that there are many different cells that together create sort of a symphony or a constellation of cells. Whether or not you have a high self or a single self or a super spiritual self, or sort of uh, like a lot of people are trying to get in touch with, or whether you are more like the Buddhists who want ultimately no self or the Taoists who think you just go with the flow. That whole question of a core self and a single self, um, that's, as Sam Harris put it, is orthogonal to our inquiry. We're just trying to do psychology and based on observation say, everybody has these day-to-day -day pragmatic selves. When you know it's true and you learn how to more easily shift into the right mind at the right time, your life gets a lot better. Now, I would never try to talk anyone out of their connection with the high self or, or let's say the mycelium mind or whatever it is. I mean, I have experienced the goddess herself in a pagan ritual once. I, you know, I've had these numinous mystical experiences, but that's not the level that my day-to-day -day selves operate on. The guy who was almost late with paying the bill that's always due at the end of the month and had to get that in before I finished this interview, he's, he's reliable and he, sometimes he messes up. But he's, you know, my high self, if I have one, can't help him. He's got to jump in and you know, remind us now it's time for that. So, you know, whenever we see people talking about essential selves or core selves or Indeed, a lot of the uh, most powerful systems for working with cells available, like IFS, focus on a single self, which is sort of the beacon that you use to harmonize all your cells. And Gurdjieff says something like that as well. But what we seem to feel is that as soon as people get focused on finding, contacting, being part of that high self or dissolving their selves to the point where what we're talking about doesn't make sense, that they've kind of left the level of ordinary pragmatic what's really going to be helpful. See, mm -hmm. Laura, I think what we're also saying is almost all of your questions deal with um, people who need some kind of therapeutic support. Mm -hmm. We're actually, and that's what most of the book is about, the way people normally are in normal situations, in healthy situations, in highly creative situations, in superbly, amazingly, uh, magnificent situations and how understanding selves makes all that better. So yes, therapy is is important, but most for most people, and it's tricky because I've been a therapist and I began to see that everyone should have therapy. But then when I was simply uh, a professor, I noticed that actually most of my students would never show up in therapy and never should. So mm. what we're looking at and why we call it observation. So as we're looking at the way the world is actually put together on the healthy side, and then to see perhaps if that can help the therapist side as well. And we think it does, but it's not central. Right. Although it does offer some really valuable insights, like in the integration phase, right after psychedelics or you know, for the next weeks or months, knowing that someone has different cells and that one of them might have gotten whacked out for whatever reason, then you can focus on that part and work with it. But if you, it just makes things a lot easier. Right. It's almost like everyone can just take a deep breath and relax a little bit. Like, okay, I'm not as crazy. Like there's not as big of a problem as everyone right. is sort of making it out to be. Well, that's like with the yeah. thing about talking out loud to yourself. You're not supposed to because it's a sign that you're crazy. 
But first of all, nearly everybody, and I mean everybody, talks aloud to themselves. And second of all, if you talk aloud to yourself in other than the first person, it kind of tones down the amygdala and bumps up the neocortex and people are more effective and happier, less stressed out. So, you know, it's like, let's take advantage of these things that are built in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so let's, let's, stay, let's stay with talking to yourself for a moment because mm-hmm. what we, because every once in a while, and, and I'm not, I am a psychologist, but I'm not a great fan of contemporary psychology, but now and then there is a study and one of the studies is that people who talk to themselves in the third person, you know, Jim, you have to get ready for this um, mm-hmm. event with Laura and you've, uh, you need to kind of, is it going to be visual and do you need to kind of put on your podcast shirt? So I'm talking to myself. Okay. Now it turns out that people who talk to the third person on almost every measure of mental health are superior, not enormously so, but are doing better than people who don't. Right. So what we're seeing is, you see, that's how we, why we call it an observation. Well, it's very hard to just to say, I'm talking to myself, but I only have one self. Mm-hmm. It, 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 that's crazy making. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and for people listening who are a big fan of Brene Brown's work, and I I love the work that she does. And she also says that some of the most resilient people, they use this one sentence on a daily basis, which is the story I'm telling myself is. Okay. The story I'm telling myself is that, you know, the, the story, the narrative that I'm making up is X, Y, Z. And it actually is one of the indications of what makes people very resilient. Um, which I find that really interesting. And I've read other studies too around like peak performance and optimal performance and the self-talk that goes into that. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, I guess going back into like the symphony aspect of things, like if I have a lot of selves and, and like how many selves are we really talking about here? Like, is there like a ballpark? What do you guys think? Like how many selves do you have, Jim? Yeah, the, the actual number of selves is more than one. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> do you and do you are you naming yourselves like your other selves? No, I don't because they don't like me to name them. They can name themselves. Okay. The the the, um, the studies on the multiple uh, on, on DID multiple personality disorder, most of those people ended up with eight to fifteen. But hmm. that's the pathological system. I did an experiment mm-hmm. with the guys in my men's group and I brought index cards and I had them all kind of lay out how many cells, but they just kept going and going once they got started. And, you know, so I think it, it changes. And what's important is you don't have to know them by name or they don't have to be, conc- it's like you come into this situation. It's like, am I going to be the part of me that's going to get annoyed at my wife for what I know she was going to do? And she did it again. Or am I going to be the part of me that will have a much better day if I let it go? It's those kind of real-time situations where it really makes a difference. Right. And would you say, though, that the symphony of all of the selves working together then does become a unified self? Well, well, sure. There's no reason not to think of it like that. I mean, we we talk about cultivating grounded, grounded centered presence. And, you know, I've always viewed myself as a panentheist, which means that divinity is both interpenetrated in every molecule of, of, of physical stuff, as well as transcended. So I think, you know, we're literally the the shockwave of the Big Bang intertangled on quantum and other levels. And so it is just one. Um, there's a lot of different ways to experience that one, but that's not the one you're in when you're being yourselves. Mm-hmm. 
usually. And when we talk about kind of being in the right mind at the right time, one of the we have a whole section of of different metaphors. One is a team, but the one I'm thinking about is a jazz combo. And if you say, well, who is the leader of this combo? And they look at each other and they say, hey, man, <laughs> you don't understand jazz, do you? <laughs> because the, the leadership moves. Because mm-hmm. they, they function as a single organized unit, honoring each of their selves, each of their special skills. Um, and the drummer never goes over and pushes the pianist off the stool. <laughs> <laughs> Unless, of course, the jazz combo is going into decay, and that's one of the ways you will see it happen. Yeah, I'd be curious to know your thoughts if you think that embracing our multiple selves can lend itself to enhanced creativity, like more looking at it from the angle of creative thinking or creative problem solving. Can this model actually help us to further think outside the box? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll give you one quick example. The title of the book, um, I very specifically got into a, a certain state of mind and sat in my chair and had the, the laptop in my lap. And I went to sleep saying, I want the part of me that's capable of channeling the perfect title to give me the perfect title. And it did. You know, you can sort of invite those parts. You can make things. And, and it's just like, you know, the writer part of me generally has to have coffee and it has to work out and it has to be fed or he's not really going to sit and do the kind of writing that part of me is really good at. And the rest of me is like, we don't care. We can't do that. No. So you have to learn how to really it's it's marshalling your forces. Right. That's a bad yeah, and it's also understanding of my daughter, who's a professor, um, was doing her morning run. And she also had a lot of papers coming in. And on the run, she thought, I can't possibly do those papers. I just don't have the feeling. I don't have the interest. I just don't want to do it. And then she said to herself, oh, of course, the one of me that gets up early in order to get the run in isn't the one that's going to work on the papers. So I don't really have to get so upset. Hmm. And she understood that that she was capable of moving into her professor self when that was appropriate. And and that last sentence, when that's appropriate, that's what we're calling mental health. Mm-hmm. So it isn't that, see, that's, that's why we're a little concerned when people talk about a best self or a core self, because there are times when what, what one might call a very peripheral self is exactly who you wish to be for that amount of time. Mm-hmm. But this kind of comes back to one of my earlier questions that I feel like listeners might still be wondering about. So I'm going to press the issue deeper. But Please. if so, are, are we saying that all selves are equal in the sense that like, what if I have like an asshole self that's like people are like, mm, don't bring that self forward. Like it just it's not doing anything for anyone or the narcissistic self or the you know, so how are we addressing that? Well, we've talked about a therapist as an outside person. But there's nothing wrong with the other parts of you. Jordan just gave an example. He was saying, well, my wife does something which triggers me, okay, meaning puts me into a disagreeable self, and I turn on my wife, and the whole day is spoiled for both of us. He knows that self. The event happens, and he says, because he's not yet, you know, he's kind of felt the trigger, but it hasn't yet shot. 
Okay. So what then happens is he says to himself, hold on, deep breath. As children, we were all told how to change from one self to another. It was called count to 10. And while you're counting, you get centered. And then what's the correct self from that motion? And the correct self in Jordan's example is one that says, that's something, that's a self that my wife has that I don't like, she doesn't like, and she's she. it isn't probably going to change. So mm-hmm. what if I don't get upset and let's see what happens next? Okay, that's, so that's there are happens. some, so you're saying that there are some, there people might have some selves that mm-hmm. might not be, that might, we might just want to give them a backseat ride for the whole ride. Well, no, you can't just push them away forever. That won't work. You're going to have to. I mean, we believe that awareness heals. Just knowing that you really have these different selves. Let's say you, you have a blatant asshole self, Laura. I haven't seen it, but let's say it's true. You know it. You got to kind of work with it and, mm-hmm. and figure out what sets it off and what it really wants and what its real job is. I mean, there's a lot of ways of working with parts of yourself, but the idea that you can just push it away, you know, it's like the mm-hmm. beach ball underneath the water. It's going to pop up when you least want it. So right. yeah, that, you know, none of your, I mean, and that's why Jim was talking about the labels in the book. We talk about me having myself that I label as Larry, the loser. Yeah. It was vape pens a lot, but still it was Larry. And that kind of negative label and making it feel shame and making it worse. It's, we know that's not the, the way we want to go. We have to love them up into the hole as our, our friend Kintler Stryker puts it. You know, let, me, but, let me give you, let me give you a therapeutic example. Um, friend of mine, friend of mine had a boyfriend and she felt good about him. It was a good relationship. And, but she, what she said to me is when we're about to make love, I freak out. And I don't want to freak out. I really like being with him. I want to make love with him. But part of me gets very frightened. So we did a little voice dialogue. We did a little looking at other selves. And um, what she reported was she had a, a child in her who was very frightened by sexuality. Maybe had been abused. Maybe just as children are, they don't know what's going on when grownups pile on top of each other and make a lot of strange noises. Okay, Mm -hmm. so what she worked out is she she spoke with her child and her child said, I don't like this relationship because I get frightened. And they ended up with she would get in bed with her boyfriend. She would then take a stuffed animal, a small stuffed animal and tuck it under one arm because her child said that was great. And the child, in a sense, would be with the stuffed animal and she would make love with her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. This is a this we're being functional. See, we're not saying, well, why don't we go back and and have to analyze was this child abused and can we all that all that might be fine, but but all she wanted to do was to make the child in her safe so that the adult could have an adult relationship. So there's mm-hmm. there it turns out there's no particular rule of thumb that your other selves are your same age. Or your same sex. Mostly they are, but it, but but not, now and then they aren't, and they can be pre-verbal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, to speak to what you were saying, Jordan. Yeah, and I know I'm like pulling apart the nuance here, but this is kind of where the the juiciness is because it's like, okay, we do parts work. We see this one aspect of ourselves and then, yeah, looking at, okay, what's wounded here or what purpose is this self trying to serve? Like, how is it acting out? Like what needs to happen to bring that self into the light of awareness and love that self and, and ask ourselves, you know, is this behavioral tendencies that's acting from this self still necessary? You know, can we find a different way to, you know, meet our needs? And then if we're doing that from a place of love, can I still say, okay, I'm still going to like lovingly with awareness, allow that self to take a backseat. Yeah, sure. At the right time, at the, there are times when you don't really want to let it out and you want to have even, you know, they call them um, Odysseus uh, agreements uh, where ahead of time, if something's happening, you go, oh, this is when, you know, like, for example, uh, sometimes in restaurants, people can't see me because I put up shields my whole life. If it goes to a point where I start getting angry and I'm going to be an asshole, I now just walk myself out. It's not worth the adrenaline and the cortisone and me being a dick, even if I'm right and they didn't see me for an hour and serve me. It's just not worth it. So I know, you know what? The self of me that likes to be in other people's faces and be righteous and argue in public, I, I almost never let him out because it's always bad for all of us. So yeah, there are, you have to, you know, you could be stern with certain parts of you and, you know, you don't want to do things that you know are going to cause harm, but the idea of killing them, which they tried to do in the 70s and 80s with fusion therapy, the idea of, you know, putting them, locking them up in a chamber forever, you know, in, in a dungeon, which you see in some of the TV programs and movies, that's not, that's not who we want to be. We want to invoke them and invite them into the community of ourselves so that they can contribute what, you know, they're meant to contribute. Mm -hmm. It almost seems like the most challenging part for people in this is probably learning how to apply self-compassion and self-kindness in the, in the navigating and traversing the landscape of multiple selves. Well, also you don't start at the hardest part. Don't start at the beginning. It means don't start with the hardest parts of yourself. Start with understanding there are parts mm -hmm. and what I've seen in a lot of people's lives is once you start to recognize the parts of you that you are fond of, that you know how to use, like how do you behave when a policeman comes to your, to your car window? Uh, what's the correct behavior? It may not be your normal behavior. What's your correct behavior when you're with your parents? Is that the same way you behave when you're with your lover? These are all healthy selves. And what I've seen, and the, the image that comes to mind about these, you know, these parts of us that are so difficult, um, uh, again, I have some dogs, and they're, they're what we call rescues, which means they had some kind of childhood trauma that put them, they ended up in the shelter. And I look at those stories of people who bring in dogs who have been, you know, really beaten and starved, and then, and then they say, you know, it took six weeks for this dog to be willing to leave the house once it was inside. It took 10 weeks before I could pet this dog. And always you're seeing the dog, you know, lying on top of the owner at this point with its little paws around its neck. Because when you nourish the parts that are disturbed, they get better. You know, again, uh, 
we all in our new age world talk about love. And in the psychedelic world, we talk about that love is probably the best way to describe the basic energetic form of the universe. But at the level of human beings, there's a love is an acceptance. And it isn't an acceptance that everything you do is correct. It's that you are inherently capable of being a valued part of yourself, of your family, of your relationships, of your tribe, and so forth. Jordan, is there anything you want to add there? Yeah, go ahead. Well, just that what's hard about this, it's a couple of things is one, as we have been told for 115, 110 years, that if you think you have more than one self, you're crazy. And it's exact opposite. It's knowing you have cells and integrating that makes you as healthy as possible. So, you know, the, the definition of having more than one self as being mental pathology shows you that the whole system is really off. And then the other thing is that language reinforces it so much so that even if you start using words like cells with an S, which I noticed you were doing a little bit, you feel a little weird and you don't know if you can get away with it. But I promise you, if you apply this perspective to the next 10 rooms on Clubhouse you see that are talking about imposter syndrome and getting in contact with my eternal self for it, it's like, it's everywhere. And you go, wow, if we put the, if we put this idea in the center of our psychology, just like putting the earth, you know, out of the center and the sun in the center made science so much more understandable. Once you get this idea and you start looking for it in yourself, in the people, you know, in all of these rooms, you'll see that there's a wide applicability. And again, the question of people who want the single self or no self, that orthogonal thing, that's fine. They can do whatever they want with that. They still are going to be healthier and happier, more effective if they know they have cells and if they learn to work with them and sort of go along with this idea. Yeah. So I guess one of the things I really like about this is that, I mean, similar to other models and conceptual frameworks, it offers a unique perceptual lens that we might be more inclined to pick up and view reality through and just inviting people to pick up this lens with an attitude of curiosity and just asking ourselves, you know, what's here for me to learn from? Well, that's, of course, the nice thing. And one of the things I've seen with, with psychedelics is when you have an important psychedelic experience, one of the ways we, we say it's important is if you get past what you, who you think you are. You get past who, you know, if you get out of, if I get out of the Jim Fadiman-ness, I'm more, I'm connected to more. And in fact, I'm not, I'm not connected to more. There is more and I'm part of it. I want to meet the wave next to me. But if you look at the bottom of the wave, it's attached to the ocean. And knowing you're attached to the ocean relaxes you in terms of how you're supposed to form. What do you think are the parallels or the connections you're making between this concept of ego disillusion in the psychedelic experience and this notion of, of multiple selves? See, the, the ego doesn't dissolve at all. The ego threatens to dissolve because the ego realizes you're about to discover that it's just your ego. It's not the, the deepest, most important connection you have. It's the separator. It's the thing that, that, that keeps you away from things. So a psychedelic experience puts your ego into its proper place, and it rarely likes that. <laughs> 
It's a, it's kind of the if you taste if you say to the spoiled child, it's over. You're not going to get spoiled. You're going to eat what everybody eats. You're going to sleep when everybody sleeps. You're not going to the same kind. And the spoiled child just has a screaming fit because they realize that the game is about to become fair for everyone. Okay, so do you think that all of our different selves are expressions of ego self? I mean, we could debate at length what that even really means. But just like this notion of the higher self is really popular, especially in spiritual communities. So is like one self an expression of higher self better than another self? Or is this more of an egalitarian society going on within us? Well, well, I... I don't even like the concept of ego myself because it's going back to this theory that Freud came up with when he got rid of the idea of selves and people doing weird things to each other and the reduction of the rejection of the seduction hypothesis. What I'm thinking on psychedelic uh, experiences is that, yes, your ordinary, you, you will no longer often be in one of your ordinary selves and have an ordinary sense of self. You're moving orthogonally on this you know, you know, I actually think Ken Wilber offered something useful, saying there's four different types of mystical visions. There's, you know, one is there's a nature experience when you're one with everything. Another is the deity experience when you're in contact with or become a god. Then there's the unitary experience when you're, again, one with everything, but it transcends nature. And then you go to the non-dual, which is <laughs> supposedly above all of that. And I never thought Wilber is necessarily right, but having those different gradations, I mean, a different thing is happening to what we would call ego in each of those. So I think it's clear that we're not going to be on an ordinary constellation of cells, but when you're coming down from any of this, knowing that you do have these cells and finding that one of them may have emerged that has been traumatized or needs a specific kind of help, that provides a huge opportunity. Right. Like it really can be an effective roadmap for the actual psychedelic experience itself. No, the actual psychedelic experience um, defies roadmaps. It doesn't like roadmaps. It says, how about we burn the roadmap and we'll follow the smoke? (laughs) I I really appreciate that. I really do. So, I mean, one of the things I've said in, in the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide is if your guide has an agenda... That's not a good God. Mm-hmm. It's, it, that's as if they're going to say, I'm going to show you how being sexual with your guide is the highest possible trip. It's, yeah. And we know that's terrible. Okay, mm-hmm. All of those are equally terrible. If your goal is to discover the way you and the universe are supposed to, to understand each other better. Yeah, I also really like how you brought up archetypes in the book as well. And that got me thinking, you know, like, can I leverage my understanding around, for example, the visionary archetype, which is an archetype that I deeply resonate with? And can I really shape one of myself into more of the visionary archetype and then draw upon that self to be more beneficial and more effective in certain situations and certain scenarios? Well, you just have to make sure that that self you want to mold uh, is in agreement. Right, you might want to invite it rather than mold it. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is hilarious. Okay, so maybe I should leave out some warm cookies and milk. I think my visionary self would really appreciate that as an invitation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let me let me finish the metaphor, and I'll get I'll get off. <laughs> Which okay. is students would come into counseling, and they would say. 
I've discovered that I don't want to be what my parents have decided I was to be. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say something like, I'm on your side. And then I would say, do they love you or they only love you if you're going to become a doctor? And then I would look at the length of the pause. And sometimes it was very long and they would, they would really have to decide if their parents actually just were making a, a doctor robot <laughs> or they actually wanted what was best for their child, who now, it turned out, had discovered medieval French literature. So what we're finding is observing the way it is, which is there are selves, makes therapy far easier for both parties because mm-hmm. you're trying to make any... You're not trying to disturb and distort. You're trying only to heal and improve. It's kind of how do you... How do you, you don't go out... If you're gardening, you don't go out and punch the carrots, mm-hmm. okay? You give them more fertilizer and more sun and more water. You, give, you nourish them, and they will actually develop naturally into the best possible carrot. And it turns out that looks like the way we are as well. Mm. I love that. I, I remember the first time I heard my spiritual teacher, one of them, Pema Chodron, she talks about this. She's like, when the puppy pees on the carpet, you don't beat the puppy. You pet the puppy. You love the puppy. You train the puppy to say stay and no, but you don't you don't beat the puppy because then you're going to make a vicious dog that's not happy and that wants to attack you all the time. Exactly. That was a good teacher. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. It definitely makes sense. Um, is there anything yeah, else remember, that we feel like exploring here? Go ahead, Jim. Well, um, you've been asking about kind of examples. And what what we've done with the book is that the middle of the book is almost is, is maybe a thousand examples. Because the question people say is, well, if there are multiple cells, why don't I see it? And the answer is, actually, if you go to neuroscience, psychology, um, religion, philosophy, popular music, um, movies, it's there. Because mm-hmm. since it is there, it should appear almost everywhere. It's like once, again, once you move from age 10 to age 13, you are amazed how much of the world is interested in sexuality. And when you were 10, nothing in the world interested you, would seem to have that, because you, didn't, you couldn't see it. So our, our recommendation is to enjoy yourselves and if you want a little bit of uh, sensitizing so you're, it's easier for you to see and to care for and to be more compassionate with both yourself and the people you love, that's what the book's about. Jordan, did you have anything you wanted to add on that? Um, only the one example we didn't use is a really good one, and that's in uh, the reason Alcoholics Anonymous is so effective compared to most <laughs> psychotherapy is that when you go to an alcoholics group, the first thing you say is, my name is Jordan Gruber and I'm an alcoholic. And maybe you say, and I'm sober now for six years. But everyone else in the room also calls on the part of who they are that is an alcoholic. So the part of you that is an alcoholic can be seen, observed, and helped with a lot of good proven tech as to you know how to deal with that. If somebody just goes to therapy or is sent there by their partner, you know they might resist, even with the best therapist, for quite a while, even admitting they have a problem. It's very different than consciously and willingly bringing that part of you into the room so it can be healed. So I think that, you know, our basic theme is just that awareness heals. And once you have an awareness that despite everyone telling you you're crazy, if you think you have different selves, you do, because everybody does, including the healthiest people alive. uh, We just think a lot of things become 
easier. And there's all sorts of implications for uh, performance and longevity and health that we, we didn't touch here. We wrote some of this up for Ben Greenfield. But, uh, you know, there are applications in every area of life because life, this is a core fundamental precept of psychology that we think is just inaccurate, that there's a single cell. Wow, so, interesting. You know, wow. So can we touch on, do, we, do you have time to touch on the, the longevity aspects? Like what, how does this point towards performance and longevity? Uh, yeah, just really briefly, um, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the story we tell, uh, that I tell about me is that I've been doing the same Taekwondo kicks for 40 years, taught by a famous master and all that. When I practice for just a few days, my body changes and gets younger and I can do a crescent kick that goes about this far over my head. Otherwise, I'm turning 61 tomorrow, and I, you know, and I can't. Uh, Ellen Langer, in her book, Counterclockwise, talks about bringing a bunch of older men to a camp where she makes it like it's 1959. Uh, oh, yeah. The music, the, the magazines, everything. Uh, a week or 10 days later, they're all a lot healthier. So you know, one of our fundamental premises uh, is that cells arise not just in traumatic, abusive situations, but sometimes during the happiest and most blissful moments of your life. And, uh, you know, once, uh, you know, for me, uh, it's turning on a raft in the ocean for hours in a row is something I started doing at about age seven. And, and 10 years ago, we were on vacation and I did it and I got right back to that self. And it's like, oh, this is a really blissful part of me. And I'm sure I moved uh, into a younger part. So we talk about telomeres and we talk about thinking and, you know, there's neuroplasticity and epigenetics. But the general idea that you can embody the younger parts of you. And that might involve more activity and dancing or painting or finger painting or whatever it is. Uh, we suggest try it. It's not, you know, you're going to feel younger and better and it some, seems to somehow actually make you younger. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I think this also points to how we can leverage our understanding of the power of placebo. You know, so many people talk about placebo from such a negative perspective. And really this is more about talking about and pointing towards the power mm -hmm. of our mind and how much our belief systems influence our reality, including our biology. And I'm, I'm actually really familiar with the counterclockwise studies uh, that Ellen Langer did. And I find them really interesting. And you also pointed out earlier in the interview that one self might have an allergy to orange juice, for example, and another self might not. And mm -hmm. there, there's actually been quite a lot of studies about, let's just call it the, the power of placebo, which I'm sure with this recent article that came out saying that microdosing is quote unquote, just a placebo, um, you're probably pretty overhearing that word these days, Jim. So I hate to bring it up. Anna, he's got a whole book no, no. to write about that, but we won't get there right away. Let me, just, let me handle placebo in a positive sense, which is we have, we have what's called, what should be called the natural healing response. See, that's what it really is. It's called a placebo, like it's something you don't want, because when you're in pharmacology and you're trying to sell people that if they take their pill, you'll feel better. And it turns out if you tell people this will make you feel better, your natural healing response does a lot of the work. So in laboratory experiments, you don't like it. Mm -hmm. But in life, my yeah, God, right. your placebo natural healing response is what your body is fundamentally only interested in. 99% of you is interested in self-healing. There's a little teeny bit up here that has a lot of other interests. And a lot of the times, as you know, at some point in that wonderful, long, wild dancing evening, your body says, you know, I'm not enjoying this at all. 
<laughs> I'm really tired. And you say, no, 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 I just want to stay a little while longer. And your body says, you want to stay a little while longer? You'll pay for it. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd love to get you on, Jim, again and talk more about the placebo, but I definitely hold it in a very positive regard because I'm a, I'm a big fan of Joe Dispenza's work. You Are the Placebo is such a great example. It's such a great book. Um, and I, I don't know if you're familiar with Bruce Lipton, Dr. Bruce Lipton's work, Biology of Belief. Sure. So I don't know if you know this, but uh, Bruce, I interviewed him for this podcast. It came out of the psychedelic closet for the first time publicly ever on this show, saying that he wouldn't have discovered what he did with epigenetics if he if it weren't for his psilocybin experiences. My, my. <laughs> surprise, surprise. It was like... <laughs> well, just, just keep in mind, since psychedelics became illegal in the United States only, and only talking LSD, not mushrooms, 30 million people have had a, an important psychedelic experience mm-hmm. in the, since it was illegal. And the other, there's, an, there's a study I'm particularly enjoying, which says, hey, could it be that people who use psychedelics are different physically in some way than people who aren't? Mm-hmm. And so you can do this study and you take U.S. Census data and you take we have 400,000 people in this group who've had psychedelics once in their life or more, and this group hasn't. And it turns out this group healthier, physically healthier, in a dozen different ways. Wow. Is there anything <laughs> else that you guys want to include before we wrap up this conversation? I want to know how your core self feels about us telling that it's not as real as it thinks it is. <laughs> I think I think my, my I think my core self needs a nap. <laughs> exactly. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, I really appreciate it, you know, and it's always I always love different frameworks and perspectives just to see what's there, you know, like what what else can I learn about myself if I pick up this particular lens and look at reality from this perspective. So, I mean, I I just really appreciate this and and being bold, you know, it's not easy to put out a framework that has been sort of contradicting conventional wisdom for the past 100 years. So, I I commend you for that. Remember, we use the word conventional wisdom in two senses. One is it's wrong. (laughs) That it makes more sense than contemporary science. Uh And what we see, if you look at the way the language is written, the way the language is, the language is filled with an understanding of selves. You know, again, I was beside myself is my favorite because I like the idea of sitting (laughs) beside myself. Okay. So... um, We're simply returning people to normal awareness. And many cultures already, they look at our book and they say, well, all that is so screamingly obvious, I'm not going to look at it. But in our culture, we need to recover our natural awareness. And that's all we're saying. Take, you know, check it, check it out. You know, look at some of the reviews on Amazon. Don't and see if if it feels like you would like to, you're, you're, comfortable with understanding yourself in a different way mm-hmm. if you're not comfortable then you're not then it isn't the right time for you thank you i appreciate that jordan anything you want to wrap up with well just that there's a reason why parts work in general and silicon valley coaching and psychedelics integration and different types of therapies there's a reason why there's so much of it because it's it's very effective often nothing will work until 
you know, whoever is going to be the facilitator gets that person and invites them to go back to that part of themselves and talk. What we're saying is that that part of you is real. I know it's a little bit of a, of a mind F to say it's real and go that you have these different selves that are real and that there isn't one, but just, you know, one super self, but just, just try it. Just, you know, investigate. Mm-hmm. See if you hold the people in your life in a slightly different frame, if it's easier to be compassionate towards them and, and towards yourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't hurt to open your mind and try a different perspective and to explore. Like my mother would say, take the best and leave the rest. Whatever doesn't work for you. Does it work for you? Great. Adopt it. If not, move on. So I think there that's great. And I, I definitely think the book is worth the read. Um, so for everyone listening, your symphony of selves, discover and understand more of who you are. Definitely worth picking up. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Thank you both for your right. time. It's been a pleasure. All right. Take care. And I'm one of your fans, too. Oh, I'm one of <laughs> okay, your fans. I'm both of care. your fans. All right. Bye, guys. Aloha. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Aloha. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. If you've been enjoying the show, I would so appreciate it if you could share it with a friend or subscribe, or if you feel called to leave me a review on iTunes. If you'd like to be in touch with me, please feel free to reach out on my website, livefreelauraD.com, or shoot me a message on Instagram at livefreelauraD. And as I mentioned in the intro, I'm also hosting weekly rooms on Clubhouse on Tuesday evenings between 6 and 8 p.m. PST. And again, you can find me there at Live Free Laura D. All right, I'm going to leave you with this song called Inner Worlds by Ye Ma. And I invite you to explore the full range of multiple selves that may live within you. Once again, my name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. Until next time.